Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai, kake mai, and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ with me, Alison Balance. It's Sea Week, so I figured that we should go to the beach. We're off to Tidy Mouth, south of Dunedin, with biologist John Waters from the University of Otago, genetics PhD student Elihi Parvizzi, and geologist and emeritus professor Dave Craw. I am walking along the beach with a biologist and a geologist, and we will shortly find out what the two are collaborating on, but John has just picked up a massive piece of bull kelp. This is uh, Davilia antarctica. It's, it's a widespread around the southern hemisphere species that grows in the intertidal but it's also buoyant so it gets um, broken off from the shore in a storm and it can actually float for a thousand kilometres or ten thousand kilometres. It's quite an exciting species. And it's got this hold fast which is where it was gripping onto the rock when it's been torn away and there's a whole lot of stuff in there. It's what we call a habitat forming species so it almost creates its own ecosystem and it really becomes the, the home for a bunch of different species living in the intertidal. Now in the Hulkbass I've got here, we can see uh, we've got a mussel there, we've got a little chitin here. That's called onothochitin, and it's, it's what we call a brooding species. It doesn't release its young into the water column, into the sea. The only way that this guy can get around is by crawling a few millimetres Otherwise, it needs to rely on this, this kelp to provide a hitchhiking service. So, so basically, the, the kelp breaks off and takes the chitons with them, and that's how they can get around. And as a result, both the kelp and the, uh, and the things that are living in there, they're quite interesting to us. So you've got long-distance travellers and a long-distance travel mechanism, basically. Well, it's right. like their bus. And we've found species that live all the way around the Southern Ocean. So I said the kelp can break off and it can raft, it can float all the way over to Chile. And we've got some of the same species turning up in, in the same sorts of habitats all the way around the Southern Ocean. So, yeah, we really think this kelp is an important way that these things get around. Another interesting thing I was going to mention here is that you can see in this kelp hold fast there's actually bits of rock that are still attached, which kind of shows how strong the kelp is. It's often the rock that breaks before the kelp breaks in the storm. But because there are different rocks in different places, when one of these breaks off and goes to sea and comes, gets washed back ashore, you can look at the rock and work out where it came from. And Dave here is the geologist, and he can often look at these rocks and say, oh, that's from Fjordland, or oh, that one came down from the southern Antarctic, so, or oh, that one's from the Catlands. So he can really help us quantify how far these things travel and how often they travel that sort of distance. So... It's a kind of a combination of the biology and the geology makes it quite uh, exciting to work together on this. So cue the geologists. Well, we're standing on right on the Ekator Fault, which is uh, an active fault uh, just south of Dunedin, 
Uh, it's a well-known uh, act of structure that uh, people in Dunedin are well aware of. But we're standing on the fault here and uh, immediately out to sea there's a row of rocks and that's the uplifted side of the fault. So that came up within the last thousand years or so and uh, exposed those rocks. And uh, a bit to the north we've got Tyree Island which is about the northern limit of the, the major zone of uplift. The island is there because it's on the uplifted side of, of the fault. And the, the fault goes onshore here, uh, heading towards the south, and uh, there's a coastal zone there that has been uplifted over the, the last 100,000 years or so uh, by something like 60 metres. The biggest earthquake seemed to make a, an uplift step in, along the fault of about two metres. Give or take. So uh, this, this happens every few hundred years. Uh, on the fault itself, it, it, it's within the last uh, few hundred years or thousand years. And on the coast here, uh, away from the fault, which is where we've been doing our work with the kelp, uh, the, there are steps that are about a thousand years old. Uh, and the, the question that we've been trying to answer is did those steps all happen at once with a big bang? or did they uh, come up incrementally, a, a little bit at a time? And uh, the question that the biologists want to know is, did it kill uh, all of the uh, intertidal uh, biota when it came up? Now, if this is sounding familiar, you're right. It's exactly what happened to the Kaikoura coastline during the November 2016 earthquake. Well, that's right. There are places along that coast that came up six to eight metres, so nothing can have hung on. And, but that's over a 50 or 60 kilometre zone where in some places it was really heavily uplifted and other, t- other places not so much. So there's that sort of regional effect as how much got wiped out and how much is going to be able to hold on or come back. And in places where it did get wiped out, what's the time frame of things coming back and how does that disturbance actually ultimately change things like the genetic distribution and structure of those species? And that's some of the questions that we've got following on from Kaikoura, but also looking back at some of New Zealand's older quakes, like this one down here south of Dunedin, and also the ones that have happened around Wellington in the 1800s. So there are lots of questions out there. But when we look at what's happened here, down near the Akator Fault, we can still see a striking genetic signature of that change that happened a 1,000 years ago. So Ellie here is doing a PhD, she's just started in the last six months the first thing we thought we'd do is well let's have a look, Dave mentioned that we had this active fault just south of Dunedin so we thought that would be a good place to start and so we started by genetically comparing the kelp that's growing on that uplifted stretch of the fault um, on the coast there versus the flanking populations which weren't uplifted to the north and to the south In our wildest dreams, we thought maybe there'll be something interesting there, but we had no real expectation. But the first thing we found was, was bang, hey presto, it's a dramatic difference in the uplifted stretch versus the, the stretches that weren't uplifted. So it's almost as though you can use the genetics to to determine where the uplift happened and there's a perfect match between the geological uplift and the genetic differences so it's super exciting for us that you can see the effects of a geological event a thousand years ago you can see that today in the things that are still growing there for us that's just astonishing that we can see those signatures persisting a thousand years till today 
So how does kelp disperse? We've looked at a, a dead adult kelp here that's clearly pulled away from a rock somewhere and floated around, but it's not like a plant. It's not going to take root here again. We have boy kelps and we have girl kelps. So what we almost need is a boy and a girl kelp to wash up at the same place and then release their sperm and eggs, which can then unite and form a new plant which colonises the intertidal right there. The good thing about this kelp is actually sometimes you get ones that grow conjoined where they share a holdfast. And if we look around here, you can see one over there. So here we've, here we've got a holdfast, but there's actually three different plants conjoined there. They've got different stipes, but you know one of those might be a boy and one might be a girl. So they're simultaneously able to, able to release their gametes and have a fertilised egg which can then settle on the, on the shore. So in this study, we've got kelp on one side of the uplifted zone that that didn't die we got kelp on the other side of the uplifted zone that didn't die wouldn't the chances be that it would be the local kelp that would reinvade the empty area you'd think it would be something from reasonably nearby that that gets in but but really it's a bit of a lottery and it might just be that the one that got in had come from down in the catlins or down in stewart island or something like that but equally it could have come from somewhere further north and what we think in this case happened was that maybe there was a strong northerly blowing for a few days and the stuff that's got in has probably come from Tago Peninsula or somewhere like that. You know, so tens of kilometres, even 100 kilometres further north, we think that the kelp that has re-established has come from so far away that it's genetically quite distinguishable from what is immediately north and what's immediately south. So that's why there's such a strong imprint of this because what got in and replaced the original kelp was so genetically different. There's a question that follows on from that is that you get one of these disturbance events and it changes things but how long can that signature of change last? The idea that you can go and recover a signature from something that's a thousand years old is pretty cool. Maybe it lasts for 10,000 years, maybe it lasts for 100,000 years so that's the sort of question that we really want to look into those things because that's a kind of a fundamental biological question if you disturb populations can you really see the the uh, consequences of that extending well into the future that idea that you can use it to retrace history so maybe we can go and use these genetic techniques and look at historical or prehistoric earthquakes elsewhere in the world you know there are there are exciting things in the mediterranean where the, the coast was uplift in in the ancient roman times or something like that pompeii I'd love to go to the Mediterranean and do some of these studies. It, it would be really good. Uh, other people have been doing them in, in the Mediterranean uh, from the point of view of species. They've been looking at uh, how species get displaced during uplift. But uh, in doing that, it's not easy to tell uh, the thing that we're trying to tell here, whereas uh, we're trying to distinguish between incremental uplift and sudden uh, big uplift. And uh, just looking at species doesn't do that. If you can uh, find some kind of genetic discontinuity within a species, all of a sudden that really does tell us something that we didn't know before. So we know about the uplift, but we just don't know how it happened. John mentioned earlier that there are often quite large rocks stuck in the holdfasts of the floating kelp, and there's certainly lots of evidence of this on the beach. In this respect, they're a lot like glacial erratic boulders, which can be enormous chunks of rock, dragged many kilometres from their source by glaciers, which have subsequently melted. We've had a piece of granite from Snares turned up here, and the big ones, they come from Fjordland, western Fjordland, so they come right around the coast, 
Uh, we're not sure if they go through Fovo Strait or around the uh, south side of Stewart Island, but they end up here, uh, sometimes yeah, up to uh, 8 10 kilograms. They're, they're, they're huge rocks, and they would be left on the beach once the kelp rots as an erratic that is very similar to a glacic one. And uh, John and I were uh, working on this when we, we first started with this uh, kelp rock stuff, uh, pointing out that a lot of the things that have been called uh, glacial erratics uh, offshore uh, New Zealand, uh, thought to have been dropped by icebergs, could actually uh, have been dropped by kelp coming from the south. Uh, so that stuff is scattered all over the sea floor out on the Chatham Rise. Thanks, Dave. That was Dave Craw. And we also heard from biologist John Waters talking about work being carried out by genetics PhD student Elihi Pavitsi and they are all at the University of Otago. Dave and John, by the way, have both been on Our Changing World before, together and separately, talking about a wide range of things, from gold and extinct sea lions to a project using the genetics of freshwater fish to make sense of wide-scale tectonic uplift across the South Island. There are links to all those stories as well as to Sea Week on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash world. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 7th of March 2019. You can find this story again and plenty more in our audio archive at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash world. We are also freely available as a podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Radio Public. Our sister podcast, The Kākāpō Files, is keeping up with all the breaking Kākāpō news – these rare, giant, flightless night parrots have a lot going on this summer. Check out the latest offerings, episode 11 on Kākāpō Rangers and episode 12 on Kākāpō Helpers. The Kākāpō Files are online at rnz.co.nz slash kākāpō and in the usual podcast places. RNZ's chemistry podcast, Elemental, is on an alphabetical journey through the periodic table of elements with chemistry professor Alan Blackman from AUT and myself. So far we've covered actinium, aluminium, americium, antimony and argon. You can subscribe to Elemental as a podcast or find it at rnz.co.nz slash chemistry. I'm posting everything on the Our Changing World webpage as well. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Cheerio, kia pai tora. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.